1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW, revoid void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. It's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please consider supporting us on Patreon or giving us a positive
3: review on iTunes or your preferred podcast aggregator. Thank you. If you haven't heard of Jack Parsons Outside of Monster Talk, you likely will soon. We've been laying the groundwork for this episode for several months, trying to provide a context to the rise of Western esotericism and occult magic in Europe. We've talked about witches, secret societies, theosophy, and the rise of Aleister Crowley's Church of Thelema. In the early part of the 20th century in Los Angeles, a young science fiction fan and rocket enthusiast spots a book by Crowley at a friend's house, and it changes his life forever. How he went from sci-fi fan to rocket scientist to magical occultist to the tragic victim of an experiment gone wrong. Well, like the science fiction magazines he loved so much, it's an amazing story.
4: It's
5: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
3: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake
4: Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner.
3: We're continuing our intermittent series on the history of magic to cover one of the strangest figures in rocket science and occult history. To talk about it, we welcome back Jerry Drake, who last joined us to talk about grimoires. Jerry does a great job of quickly summarizing the astonishing life of Jack Parsons. If you want to dig deeper, you can seek out the two biographies we talk about in this episode, Strange Angel, which is about to be turned into a CBS series, and Sex and Rockets, which looks closely at the magical life of this interesting figure. The story has sex, magic, science, betrayal, intrigue, spies, murder, theft, and much more. That it has taken this long to have it turned into a TV show surprises me. We sort of rushed into the magical side of things during this interview, but Parson and his friends were true pioneers in the field of rocketry. Just before World War II, they had been working to try and build solid-fuel rockets capable of high-altitude instrument drops. When the war came along, they were in the best position to potentially invent the much-needed JATO device, a rocket-assisted launch device that was crucial for getting planes off the ground on short runways or aircraft carrier decks, and which could also be used as a sort of turbo-boost escape device for getting away from enemy fighters. The problem was that the rockets had a tendency to blow up when they were more than a day or two old, and they were so dangerous that the people testing them became known as the Suicide Squad. The story goes that one day Parsons saw some roofers mixing pitch for a roofing job and got the idea to make a similar mix for the rockets. By mixing the fuel with a heated pitch, the solid fuel would cool evenly and not crack, which was the breakthrough needed to get the J-2 contract and to make the devices safe for military use. But Parsons wasn't just a rocket scientist. He was also interested in unleashing his magical potential through Thelema, and through his work with Aleister Crowley's American Agape Lodge. Parsons became the leader of a very strange crew of misfits and cultists. This group included a red-headed raconteur and sci-fi writer named L. Ron Hubbard, who would later go on to found Scientology, but not before allegedly robbing Parsons and stealing his girlfriend. It's quite a story, so I'll stop teasing it, so let's just join Karen and Jerry for some
4: monster
3: dog. So first of all, welcome back, Jerry. Thanks for coming to talk mm-hmm. to us again. Sure.
6: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
3: So as, since you're not just a, uh, a contributor and all around awesome person, and also you listen to the show, you know, we've been doing a series on the the history of magic and how it sort of interacts with these sort of fringe topics. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I think there's probably no more singular nexus point for all this overlap than than in the person of Jack Parsons. Um, but I, I didn't feel qualified talking about him myself because of my limited amount of reading. Uh, there's two biographies out on him at least. and Right. One's called Strange Angel and the other is Sex and Rockets. And I, I read an interesting review <laughs> that describes Sex and Rockets as a story of an occultist who happens to be a rocket scientist and the book Strange Angel as the story of a rocket
6: scientist who happens to be an occultist. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Well,
4: it's funny. all in the interpretation. Yeah, you know,
6: I, I I've read both of them um, twice now, um, and you know, Strange Angel is getting adapted into kind of a fictiony-looking TV show for CBS Online. I I actually think Sex and Rockets, though, is the better book because I I actually think Parsons was an occultist who dabbled in rocket science. I mean, I I think that's the correct interpretation of of his life. Okay.
3: I, I think it I, that's the way it comes across, absolutely, certainly. And, of course, the author here spends a lot of time in the book talking about the specifics of the rituals he performs. But we, we've sure. done all this background work. Uh, let's um, let's start out by giving a quick biographical sketch of Parsons and his life. And you can go all the way to the end if you want to, and then we'll just sort of de-
6: I was kind of thinking about how to go over his life because, you know, he only lived to be 37 years old. You know, Parsons is born— in the 2nd October 1914 and he dies under some interesting circumstances June 17th 1952 he was 37 and uh, he lived his whole life like within a few square miles of the place where he was born in Los Angeles uh, primarily he lives on a road close to where he was born that they sort of called Millionaire's Road it was Orange Grove Avenue um, where he buys a mansion later on that people call the Parsonage. Obviously, you know Blake, you like Jack because he he loved the pun, right? He did, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then he ends up selling that place to some developers and living in the carriage house behind it, and then you know living in a couple of other flops around there uh, right up until he dies when he you know sort of blows himself up in his in his in his laundry room slash laboratory. But Parsons isn't an interesting guy. He's actually born Marvel Whiteside Parsons is the name he's born with. And from what I can tell, that's a weird damn name by the uh, standards of the time. I mean, people had weird names in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, He's named after his dad, Marvel Parsons, who we don't know a lot about, who either had a fairly minor military career or a fairly elaborate and and exciting military career. I, I think the real person i would like to take a peek into is marvel parsons the father because either he was a do nothing in the military or he was sort of a massive hero that in some ways eclipsed his son but we don't know that much about him and he died here in washington dc literally about a quarter mile from where i'm sitting like i walk by the place where he died um when my wife and i take our regular walks i haven't tracked down his grave yet but that's one of the things i want to do and, you know, Jack was he had a wealthy mother uh, whose parents moved her out to California um, and he was coddled and spoiled as a kid. The father cheated on on the mother and she spent sort of the rest of her days sort of fawning over her boy and then sewing a, a rift between Jack or John Parsons and and his dad, Marvel, who he never had a relationship with. And in fact, Jack Parsons when he writes he always writes in the third person which is really weird he he writes about himself and he uses the you know, the descriptor you and he has this long thing where he talks about having a, a sort of a, a Oedipan complex for his mother and slaying his father and all this stuff so even he is aware of the complex psychology of, of his relationship with his father and he develops a, an interest in rocketry really early as a kid basically by making explosives out in his backyard. And he falls in love with sci-fi. And, I mean, growing up in 1914, he's living in sort of the golden age of, of science fiction, you know, and pulps and all, all that stuff. And and pretty early on, from what we can tell, becomes obsessed with the idea of space travel and using rockets to, to break the, the barrier, um, the Earth-space barrier. And he begins to experiment with rockets really early on. He goes to community college, uh, you know, then he ends up down at the university there. Um, when he's 18 years old, he marries the old daughter, of, uh, uh, a woman named Helen Northrup, of a, of a fairly prominent local business guy who, again, was sort of an abusive dad. So there's some weird stuff going on there. Um, eventually has, has an affair with her younger sister while she's still underage. Um, she jacks up with her for a little while and... During this whole time period, he's working with the Guggenheim Rocket Group uh, out there at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, which they called Galsett back in those days, to develop a, a rocket program. Now, this is, this is before the Second World War, and this is at a time when people didn't really believe rocketry was a valid science. I know it's hard for us to imagine that when, when we think about the fact that you know all of us here grew up in the shadow of the moon landing. I mean, I was born the year of the last moon landing and sort of grew up in that, but there was a time when people thought rocketry was was preposterous. So, oh, just, yeah, you know,
3: My understanding is jet. that
6: the uh, when he
3: gets involved with JATO, that mm-hmm. they call it jet assist instead of rocket assist, precisely yeah. because there's
6: a uh, sort of a, a public relations issue. People think of rockets as sci-fi. Exactly. That's exactly right. In fact, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, which Parsons was one of the founding fathers of, picks the name Jet because people didn't think rocketry made any sense. I got to tell you, that's the one I have the hardest time wrapping my head around because, you know, George Washington had a rocket corps during the American Revolution. Like, we used rockets for stuff in com- combat. So the idea, and again, all the all the research seems to indicate that people just associated with rocketry with this ridiculous concept of, of, of space travel, which nobody took seriously at the time. So, you know, Parsons, is he never gets his degree. Um, He's f- falls in with these guys at the Guggenheim Institute out there. I mean, long story short, he just sort of falls into a cadre of people who are all doing really cutting edge work on rocketry. Robert Goddard is out at New Mexico at that time. They sort of pack up the truck and go out there and visit with him. And he's super secret about his research. So they're not able to build a relationship between their team and, and, and Goddard. And within the space of a couple of years, they go from sort of making these home-built rockets to building what we now is the JATO rocket, which JATO stands for Jet Assisted Takeoff, which is really um, you know, rocket-assisted takeoff. And the idea was is that you could use a rocket to do one of two things. Get a plane off the ground, off the deck of a ship, or off of a really narrow runway, short runway, or use the JATO to blast your way out of a dogfight by hitting a bunch of speed uh, while you're in the sky. And... Once they actually perfected that rocket and started putting it on planes, um, people started to take Parsons and his group really, really seriously. And to Parsons, you know, great loss, he, I mean, you know, they always call us, you know, one of the big critiques of academia is that we're a bunch of snobs and all that stuff. But this was a point where Parsons' inability to develop a, a, a basis in academic rigor cost him a career. Like. He didn't keep good notes. He had bench notes. He was sloppy with his experimentation. He mixed explosives up in coffee cans. And he, you know, ostensibly is forced out of the jet propulsion laboratory because he's a sloppy scientist. I mean, that's what it says in his in his file and his FBI file. Not because he was involved with black magic, although that's what Parsons blames, you know, his persecution on. But You know, it it appears that he just is never able to make that leap from sort of cowboy genius to, you know, serious um, scientist and then people who have the rigor and the math skills to go on and 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 upscale his inventions sort of sort of take it from there. Um, um, During this whole time period, while he's working on rockets, he's working at a gunpowder factory, explosive factory. He's everywhere in L.A. like he's testifying in court. Uh, he ends up helping break up a ring of corrupt cops who blow a guy up. Parsons is able to rebuild the explosive device, the car bomb that was used, and demonstrate that, you know, it could be used to, to blow up a car. He's hanging out, you know, with people like, you know, some um, Heinlein's widow denied it, but apparently he had a relationship with Heinlein. Um, he's hanging out with anybody and everybody in L.A. that, that wants a good party, uh, and he falls in with um, a group of Cali- Crowleyites out there. Proleites out in L.A., uh, who established a, a church of Thelema out there. And don't forget, at this time, uh, Aleister Crowley is still alive, and he enters into a correspondence with Jack Parsons, and he thinks he's this awesome, you know, super magical guy who's really got a lot of energy, and he sort of nurses a, a relationship with him. And of course, you know, Crowley in the back of his head is broke and strung out and having lung problems, so he's, you know, also seeing this as an opportunity to get some of that sweet Hollywood money. Um, so they developed this relationship, and they established the Agape Lodge of the OTO, essentially in in, in Parsons' house, his, his mansion, which he has subsequently subdivided and, and put in apartments. So, you know, this is a guy who goes down to the, the uni, does his research, builds his rockets, and then at night he's doing Thelemite research and, and engaging in these sort of, of sex rituals and having trysts with all these women uh, um, and things are going great guns until one day, uh, freaking L. Ron Hubbard shows up. <laughs> I mean, this is the craziest story. You know, Ron Hubbard has sort of been cashiered out of the Navy. The war is over. He's a young science fiction writer. And in the middle of all this insanity, you know, the founder of, of Scientology just rolls up needing a flop. And of course, he finds Parsons' house. And Parsons just becomes incredibly infatuated with a the guy. They begin to, you know, really, some people have argued they they had a gay relationship. You know, the FBI seems to have thought so. They had a, they had a good time together. Uh, Hubbard sort of became his understudy. Um, Crowley was apparently impressed with the guy as well. And in, in the middle of all of it, they pull off this thing that uh, uh, Parsons called the Babylon working. Now, that's B-A-B-A-L-O-N, not uh, the other spelling. Babylon is supposed to be this sort of ancient goddess that's, you know, cooked up in Thelemite mythology. And they spend a whole bunch of nights engaging in sort of sex magic and you know what we might call you know tantric magic as as, as Parsons does this Babylon ritual to summon this uh, uh, this goddess this scarlet woman to earth. One night after they do their performance out in the desert, they go back to the parsonage, and sure enough, here's this gorgeous, striking, redheaded woman. Marjorie Cameron hanging out there and Parsons goes, aha, it it works. I've summoned my Scarlet Woman and he falls passionately in love with Trist happens, you know, Parsons wife's out of the picture, his girlfriend, the younger sister who he calls Betty Northrup runs off with L. Ron Hubbard. They take Parsons, uh, something like $20,000 of his money, go to Florida to buy boats. Lawsuit happens. Bada -bing bing. You know, Parsons sues them, gets twenty-five hundred bucks of his money back. Elron Hubbard and Betty Northrup get married, sail off into the future of Dianetics and Scientology, and they're divorced. Parsons returns to L.A. He he's lost his fortune. He sells his house. He moves into the carriage house. He falls in with Marjorie Cameron, who's quite a talented artist and occultist in her own right. Um, he's doing business with Israel, and gets investigated by the FBI. Parsons had Marx, Marxist ties as a young man. Uh, the uh, HUAC and the government get involved. He loses a security clearance as a result of his ties to Marxism and to the Israeli government, which is forming at the time. Uh, he manages to clear his name. He's in the process of going to Mexico to do some work. Uh, he's in the process of negotiating a deal with the Israeli government to become an expat and move over there, work on their rocket program. He, he gets a rush order for some explosives for a Hollywood film. Big explosives explosion Downtown and downstairs in his makeshift laboratory. The the tenants that he's renting rooms to upstairs run downstairs and see a half blown up Jack Parsons, you know, struggling for life on the floor with, you know, half his body missing, arm gone, hole in his head. They take him to the hospital. He, he expires a few hours later. And from that point forward, you know, the myth of Jack Parsons is born. Marjorie Cameron, who was his wife at the time, believed that he had been assassinated by the government. So did some of his friends, people who who knew him back in the old days, admitted that he was a sloppy chemist and a heavy drinker and if he was working with of mercury, you know dropping that on the floor of his lab would have been like 10 million matches going off. Um, and he, he sort of became something that the world forgot until I mean when, when I got on the internet in the late 90s, you know that's how I discovered Jack Parsons. There was just a outlift sir about Alistair Crowley where people talked about him. But then out of the blue, you know, I mean, about 10 years ago, I already started talking about it. Like, I don't know if you guys l- listen to the podcast, uh, Tannis, a story that Parsons supposedly wrote that's apocryphal. He didn't really write it. It serves as the basis for that podcast. Uh, not, no spoilers, but if you've read all the, the Twin Peaks material, the two books that came out in conjunction with the series, the Babylon working in that has a lot to say about how the, the Twin Peaks universe was created. And Parsons has just become this par- this huge pop culture hero in the last few years. There's two bios out about him. He's a hero of podcasts and conspiracy websites and, you know, all, all kinds of strange, weird corners of the web where, where people are you know, wanting to talk about this stuff. And now he's getting his own TV show. And finally, JPL has sort of resurrected his, his uh, reputation as a legitimate scientist. He has a crater named after him on the moon. Um, you know, he's... The government's kind of scrubbed his record and, and, you know, now shows off his inventions at the Smithsonian and that kind of stuff. So that's sort of the, the 37 plus years of Jack Parsons in, what, five minutes?
3: That was amazing. You did a great job of covering it. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think show's over now.
6: Oh, OK. Yeah.
4: <laughs> that's an amazing story. And what, a, what an extraordinary life he lived. I just don't even know where to begin with this.
6: You know, one of the things I think that we have to realize is that this, this story actually began. I think why we really started talking about this during the grimoire episode is, you know, one of the grimoires that I brought up, I believe at that time, was one called The uh, the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abrabella and the Mage, which is supposedly a, a Kabbalistic magic that goes back to the 1300s, uh, uh, 1400s. And that is the book that Alistair Crowley, Crowley uses at Boleskine House. Uh, to try to summon his moon child or his guardian angel. Um, and he spends that six months up there doing all these crazy rituals before that finally breaks down. And that's really the thing that, that Parsons bases his attempt to summon the Scarlet Woman or Babylon on. And, you know, Crowley writes a book about it called The Moon Child, which I personally think is a rewriting of Mockin's The Great God Pan, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this story actually predates. Parsons, it begins with Aleister Crowley, and then I think it's still going. Like, Parsons has a life now that exists in pop culture that's sort of transcended the, the, the life of the real guy.
4: Right. And so, speaking of Crowley, uh, how do you think that Parsons, uh, Thelema, Thelema, I guess it depends how you want to pronounce it? How want to pronounce um, it?
6: Crowley Crowley, Thelema, Thelema.
4: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Potato, potato. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> How do you think that uh, his involvement in this uh, this group would be interpreted by typical 1950s America?
3: Oh, quickly, uh, magic, it's spelled the same, but pronounced different.
6: <laughs> magic. magic. Actually, you know, I, I, I hate to do this to you, but you know, Alistair Crowley actually told us how to pronounce his name. He wrote a poem called The Convert, and it has a line in it that goes, Where are you going so meek and holy? I'm going to the temple to worship Crowley. So he... Tells us Uh how to pronounce his name. Um.
3: (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And if Um, you get the uh, Sex and Rockets, the new edition, it's got an opening by uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and he keeps reminding you throughout the essay, it's pronounced Crowley, rhymes
6: with Holy. Yeah. Might have
4: been a half rhyme, though.
6: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we know what people thought about Jack Parsons and Dilema at the time. Uh, One of his obituaries from the Pasadena Independent says, John W. Parsons, handsome 37-year-old rocket scientist, killed Tuesday in a chemical explosion, was one of the founders of a weird semi-religious cult that flourished here about 10 years ago. Old police reports yesterday pictured the former Caltech professor as a man who led a double existence, a down-to-earth explosives expert. How can you be a down-to-earth explosives expert? <laughs> who dabbled in intellectual necromancy. Possibly he was trying to reconcile fundamental human urges with the inhuman Buck Rogers type of innovations that sprang from his test tubes.
3: And if that doesn't so, kick off your Call of Cthulhu investigation, your campaign is broken. Yeah,
6: you, Your campaign is broken. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm working on my new uh, uh, HP Lovecraft streaming service. I'm calling it Call of Cthulhu. Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> all right, you can. All right, never mind.
5: Um, we know. I,
6: um, sorry. We, so I mean, you know, you have to take. Let's go way on back because we kind of talked about this last time. Like, we're mm. are, are they competing with
3: uh, uh Neuralatho flicks. I'll have to work on that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Oh, th- this just got real nerdy. I really apologize, Karen. All okay. Right.
6: Just <laughs> got. Just got. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like we're all products of the satanic panic, right? And before that our parents are products of the Red Scare. So you know, we're talking about a time before Jonestown, before the Satanic Panic, before any of that stuff, when, when when everybody was a Christian, you know, everybody went to church. So the the world of sort of magic, witchcraft, the occult, Christianity, fringe religion was was was, was more real back then. Like, you know, you you had people who were doing things that we would consider cultish behavior. You know, um, who was that guy, Reverend Major Jealous Divine, the the black pastor from Philadelphia who had this big alternative religious Christian movement? And you know, these guys are on the radio and they were fairly mainstream. So you know, by this time in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Crouley has jumped the shark. He's he's not the great beast anymore. There's nothing that he can do that's shocking and. People are reading Oscar Wilde in school, and, you know, there's, there's just not that stigma. He's an, he's an antique by this time. And this is a world of science fiction and sort of intellectual play. So I really don't think people saw Thelema as anything other than just, you know, a, a, a bit more California weirdness. It, it was just, it was no different than any, you know, I don't want to say seven-day adventism, but, you know, that's the tradition my family comes out of. And they were thought of as just kind of a little off-center and a little weird at that time. Prior to the whole associating anything not sort of main-line American Protestantism or Catholicism with with Satanism, I think Parsons was thought more of in his day as just being an eccentric. And again, he chalks up um, his firing from JPL or his dismissal from JPL to his association with Thelema. But the file actually says it was because he was a sloppy scientist. And I think it was probably easier for him to reconcile in his mind that he was a persecuted religious minority rather than a guy who just was so-so at his, his work. You know, one of his critics, or one of his ex-friends who became critics actually said, you know, Jack wanted to behave the way he always did in his backyard, you know, and in this laboratory situation we had to be safer. And I, he blew up a couple, like their lab blew up a couple of times. They actually got kicked off <laughs> campus. So I I don't know. I, th- I think that Lima is probably considered a lot more weird and terrible today than it was back then when it was still new and still kind of being participated in by people who were fairly, you know, fairly normal and, and mainstream.
4: Wasn't he a Marxist for a while too? I read that somewhere. Uh,
6: I mean, he flirted with everything. Like he was a Marxist for a bit. That's what got him in trouble, you know, the first time with the government. He he was a seeker, what we would call a seeker now. You know, uh, I mean, I think I would say he was just a you know, kind of a poor little rich kid who was looking for, he was very intelligent. I mean, that's dismissive, but he was a very intelligent guy. He had a lot of drive and a lot of genius, but he was really looking for an anchor, a worldview, and a a father. And he was continually, you know, sort of hooking up with beautiful women, stroke that ego, and then strong, interesting, powerful men, Crowley, the scientist there at Caltech, Um, l ron hubbard later you know people who could fill that gap of the missing sort of marvel parsons and he has this dual personality i mean in his professional life he's referred to as john parsons in his occult life he's jack parsons you know and he's got this sort of two-fisted two-handed way of being you know a lot of women thought he was effeminate but the fbi file says that he's this macho man so he's really very you know mercurial in the way he approaches life. He's always sort of looking for something. And I mean, this is a guy who's embraced a, a fringe science, what would be called a fringe science then. So for him, fringe ideas are not are not out of bounds. And I think that's the thing that we really have to understand is that, you know, the idea of, of, of psychokinesis or the use of the will to actually manipulate the world, you know, prior back in those days we're in balance like like we didn't know what the human will was capable of like this was not something you could easily dismiss with skepticism And in the 60s the government spent a lot of money looking into this stuff you know <clears throat> if the idea of space travel was in bounds and a lot of what parsons was looking at for people was in balance probably a lot more than than it is today
4: and my husband commented he watched a couple of uh, youtube videos with me on jack parsons and uh, he drew some parallels to Howard Stark, and yeah. uh, he was just wondering with him being a womanizer and just all of the other elements of his personality. Do you think that uh, that character was modeled after him in any way?
6: I don't know if he was modeled after him, but boy, it, it's certainly tempting to say that. There were a couple, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there actually are a couple of characters that are based on Parsons that we know. I can't remember if that's one of them. And again, okay. he keeps showing up. But he, I mean, that's the question. Is is he defining the role of the mad scientist, or is he playing that character, or is that character based on him? That's one of the things that I mm-hmm. kind of always keep coming back to. Because it seems like that house had everybody in the world in it. Like, man, anybody that seemed to blow through Hollywood between 1930 and 1950 seemed to figure out how to get up to Jack Parsons' place. And I mean... You know, Kenneth Ager in, in his books points out how small Hollywood was in those days. So that's entirely possible, but he certainly seems to be in, to have been a person who had a tremendous influence on, on people for us to actually, you know, know so little about him as an, as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His house had sort of a different Hollywood Babylon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Again, that's spelling, right? Right. Yeah. It, that's, that's actually not a bad, not a bad double entendre, uh. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Stay tuned. There'll be more. (laughs) I mean, there were a couple of people like uh, Paul Matheson who claimed to have a a gay relationship with Parsons that other people denied. Like, 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 I guess that's really the thing. The guy didn't keep a diary. A few of his really private papers were passed to uh, his second wife, uh, Marjorie, who actually never went by Marjorie. She went. Purely by her her given last name Cameron. That's the the, the name she went by, and uh, unfortunately, her jealous husband destroyed all of the Parsons notes on the Babylon working, except for the stuff that was that was published. The actual Libra Forty Nine that he wrote up and and published. So, I mean, a lot of what we would know about Parsons, it was kind of destroyed by his later poverty, and then by the weird things that happened with his second wife's relationship. So we're, we're really left to look at what other people said about him, the FBI file, the, the records at JPL. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff doesn't cover the the occult aspects of his life. And now I think a lot of people are just kind of trying to ride his coattails and make claims about their relationship with him. Because, again, that house seemed to just – anybody who was interesting sort of passed through that front door.
3: Yeah, we'll put some links in the show notes, but there's some interviews with people who actually lived at the house uh, on YouTube. Yeah. Which- Which are pretty interesting. Um, So Crowley, uh, he seemed like, we we talked about him in uh, multiple episodes. So if if you're just tuning into this as your first episode in our magic series, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our uh, sort of uh, series we've done going from early witchcraft trials all the way up through... Uh, Alistair Crowley and Western esotericism. Give this stuff some context. This is a really interesting guy, but I think if you take him outside of that context, it's a fantastic story, but it makes a lot more sense if you know where it's coming from. But let's. Right. my question is, so Crowley, who seemed like he was looking for money from the American OTO chapters, but, but what else was he looking for from Parsons and from Smith, the guy that was in charge of this lodge before him? What, what was Crowley trying to get out of spreading Thelema?
6: Well, I mean, Crowley, I, I, and that's, man, that is a complicated question, you know, and I've worked in Crowley stuff. There's, you know, one of the things I like about Alistair Crowley is I get older, I'll always be able to cosplay him. I, I seem to see his, his face in the mirror more and more <laughs> when I get up in the morning. <laughs> so, you know, I have a soft spot for him. He's going to be my Halloween costume for the rest of my life, but... Um, <laughs> That is the big question of people who sit around and discuss this guy, is to what extent was he a true believer versus to what extent was he a cynical manipulator? And I, I think he was some of each, you know, to be entirely honest. I mean, he spent between 1914 and 1919 in the United States, and that time when he's at Boleskine House, I think that's 1899 to 1913, that 14 years— is really the longest time the man ever stays in one place and a lot of his true believers sort of believe that the failed um Abramelin operation is what infested the guy with demons that if he had completed that operation and and talked to his higher power and and met his guardian angel that he would have been a, a better guy but the failure to do that is what made him the great beast and i think he might have stoked up that reputation later on but he begins his career as a guy who's absolutely a true believer. And as he has the revelations that lead him to write the holy books of Thelema in the early 20th century, around 07 to 09, um, he's, he's intent on founding a new religion. And it's a new religion that, you know, he has rooted in history. It, you know, it, it goes back and, and relates to some earlier writings about free will it's, it's a cleaned up, very British version of sort of Nietzsche's philosophies. Um, it's super libertarian in its outlook, you know, and it, it's very much about the dignity of the individual, the individual freedom. And he's sort of proposing Thelema as, as an alternative, not just to Christianity, but as an alternative to other forms of esotericism, the Golden Dawn, masonry, all these things he had dabbled in. Um and he's really trying to supplant that with his own belief system. So in the beginning, you know, Crowley is very he founds the Abbey of Thelema in Italy, which just turns into this hellish nightmare of gross sickness and debauchery for real. Um and he doesn't come out of that unscathed. As he gets older, he seems to be trying and poorer and broker and sicker. He seems to be relying more on more on acolytes to to pay his bills than he is actually trying to be a, a a priest of this new religion. And I think by the time he runs into Parsons, he's about 50, 50. He's really trying to found the Lima in the United States as a, you know, of course the United States is where something like this would take off. I mean, look, L Ron Hubbard, man, he got the message. He figured this out too sweet and, and made it work in a way that Crowley certainly never did. But that was because I think L Ron Hubbard was completely cynical. He, he wasn't sincere at all. He, he was in it for the bucks. Um, when Parsons uncovers Crowley looking for this father figure, I think from looking at their letters and their communications as we can see them, there was a genuine affection between those two guys. He actually liked Jack Parsons, even though they were communicating by mail and by Smith and these other guys who were there. He had very strong opinions on Parsons, you know, on, on Betty Northrup, the sister of Parsons' wife. He called her up a vampire and a a hellcat and all this stuff and thought that she would be Parsons. And Crowley actually predicts that Betty Northrup would be uh, Parsons' downfall. And she turns out to be. Um, So, I mean, you know, this is a guy who has a genuine affection for him. Um, Parsons is very gullible in terms of his money and he, you know, Crowley never taps him any harder than he needs to. So I think he's legitimately trying to get a foothold in, Hollywood. I mean, Crowley's a movie fan. He goes to see movies. He knows, he's knows what's going on out there. But he's also trying to lay the groundwork for, you know, what's become a very painful retirement for himself.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: Let me let me throw in a quick follow up or just a comment. The this this sort of if you want to go a little bit Freudian, which Parsons himself does, even though I think, you know, Freud's theories are discredited, discredited or not, people lived by them or thought they were interpreting their lives through them. So so Wilfred Smith was the guy running the chapter when Parsons gets involved and and he ends up taking Jack's wife away but yet, Parsons still sees Wilfred as like a father figure and interacts right. with him and works with him for pretty much the rest of his life. And, Correct. And, and, well, it's yeah. like
4: George Harrison and, and uh, Eric Clapton, I guess.
3: Yes. Yeah.
6: But you know, <laughs> with
4: Patty I mean, Harrison. Wow. You don't know about that.
3: I don't know about that. I'm not much of a rock guy. Oh, well, but, yeah,
4: so. George, George Harrison's first wife, uh, Patty Boyd, left him for Eric Clapton, and yet they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Well that's the rest kind of Carson's awesome. Life. Cool.
3: Yeah. Good I mean, it's cool that they're able to do it, but like Parsons, like it just seems like again and again he gets sort of, if you don't mind me saying dicked over by people. Takes, <laughs> takes, takes it on himself, like what did I do wrong? And then tries right. to, like just says, Okay, this is yet another challenge I have to go through to get to my ultimate goal of this moon child thing, you know?
6: Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. Now he has he wrote, you know, he actually told Helen his wife because these are sisters. Let's be clear, you know, uh, Helen, the older Northrop sister, is Jack Parsons' wife. The younger Northrop sister, Sarah Elizabeth Bruce Northrop, who Jack called Betty, Betty short for Elizabeth, Beth Betty, um, is the girl that he ends up falling in with. But they don't get married. They have a a relationship, a sexual relationship while Jack is married, and then Smith actually takes Parsons' real wife away from him. But Parsons actually tells Helen, his wife, that he thinks the, the kid's sister is more sexually compatible with him. And then Eddie sort of develops this resentment to Parsons, but ends up staying with him. So they, you know, I mean, you can only, I mean, that's too much drama, man. All the people in that house, all jumping in and out of each other's beds and then this weird L. Ron Hubbard guy shows up and takes Betty away and Parsons fights back here but but is but 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 Betty's eventually able to talk him out of pursuing his legal case like like she convinced I mean they straight up rip off Jack Parsons they take his life savings buy some boats with uh, under the pretext that they're going to sell them they don't sell them they bug out to Florida. Parsons gets on a plane, tracks them to Florida. Literally, does a magic ritual to summon them back to shore. Which a big storm blows up, and Parsons has convinced himself he was successful. And they they do a deal in court where he essentially drops the claim for twenty five hundred dollars. So you're absolutely right. I mean, getting dicked over is what this guy did, and he that happened to him with JPL. I mean, he 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 was never able to really. I mean, he could build rockets. He could he could sort of live this life, but in terms of the business aspects of his career, I mean, he was just no good at that stuff. And but, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah
3: his, but, his, had he was forced to sell his stock when they kicked him out of the group. The, the, correct. And and that stock would have been worth millions, mm-hmm. and he got about twenty thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. So.
6: Well, not only that, he sells his house. And what do they build there? The first Bush Gardens. Yeah. They <laughs> so don't even, even make money off his real estate. So, wow. you know, So here he is at the end of his life working for the company he was working for when he first got started and making up pyrotechnics in and, and what was literally his converted laundry room. Like, But, I mean, that's the path of genius. The same thing happened to Tesla. I mean, Tesla ends up having this really bright career where he's got a, a million patents all at once doesn't monetize any of them and then ends up living off this kind of tiny retirement in a hotel room feeding pigeons like there's a difference between sort of parsons and edison and tesla and edison like some geniuses can monetize their stuff and some guys just don't don't have the don't have the, the ability to do it oh I mean, you've mentioned uh... I give all my stuff to the government for free, and my wife thinks I'm stupid, so I might be in that camp, too. So.
4: <laughs> but uh, getting back to L. Ron Hubbard, we've yeah. touched upon him a couple of times. So can we go into a little bit more detail about how he became involved with Jack?
6: Yeah, first off, I just want to say I love Scientology. Uh, don't sue me. I, uh, anything I say from this point on is is. Is purely for entertainment purposes. <laughs> sure, we, we love Scientology too. We love it. It's it's a valid religion. Everybody, just chill out. So, um, I we probably shouldn't even be doing this
3: episode. We should be watching the upcoming uh, Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> right, right. We're all we're all friends here. Yeah,
4: no, I didn't write a, a chapter about them in one of my
6: books. No, no. Oh yeah. So oh. we are all clear, right? We're all clear. Yeah, we're yeah. All clear. Yeah, we're
5: clear. We're all clear.
6: <laughs> We're all barefaced and clear. Um L. Ron Hubbard shows up at the house. He's sort of introduced to Parsons through that occult community. Their connections are a little bit unclear. He shows up at the house renting a room, referring to himself as Captain Hubbard. I don't think he was a captain. I think I think he was a, a lieutenant or something like that, a f- you know, fairly mid-ranging officer who did have command of a ship off the coast of the the United States, and he... Sort of got this idea in his head that the the Japanese and the Nazis had taken over some island off the coast of of the U.S. and bombed it. He was diagnosed with what they used to call war nerves and sort of cashiered out of the service. And you know he's obsessed with boats and he's a kind of minor science science fiction writer. And he shows up at the parsonage. And whatever the connection was between these two guys, they hit it off immediately. I mean, this must have been you know a man crush of historic proportions, proportions like these guys really seem to legitimately love each other right off the bat. They're spending all their time together. They, you know, Parsons has this idea to do the Babylon working Libra 49. He's gone out into the desert and sort of been delivered this, this vision of how to manifest uh, Thelema through Babylon. And he gets uh, Hubbard on board and they spend you know, just hours at night, and you can go online and read this. If you, I think, if you go to Jack Parsons's YouTube page, there's link to the, or not YouTube, Wikipedia page. There's links to various published versions of the Babylon working. It is just silly as hell. But if they were up there reading this thing at night, a couple of, you know, for the children in the audience, you know, Parsons was pleasuring himself at different points during this thing and engaging in sex magic while, you know. Hubbard was playing the role of number two and taking these notes, and it builds up to this culmination out in the desert um, in which Parsons, you know, goes out there and performs the last phase of the, the ritual. Um, you know, they go out in the desert and perform this this ritual, I can't find the date, but I think it was uh, 1946, January to March 1946. You know, they go out in the desert and perform this ritual and, you know, whatever they see out there convinces Parsons that he's been successful. And then when they come back to the parsonage, the way they tell the story, the way Parsons recorded it, is that Marjorie Cameron was there and, and they saw in her the manifestation of, of Babylon. Um, and she was a, a big look up Marjorie Cameron from 1946. She was a very striking, you know, uh, a woman. I, I mean, that I, I probably would have been impressed, too. Um and from that point on, their relationship seems to break down, like like the new shiny in Parsons' life is Marjorie Cameron, and Hubbard becomes sort of interested in, in Parsons, you know, what are we going to call her, mistress, girlfriend, the sister of his wife, and they begin to build a relationship. And Betty, the way people described her, is she was an incredibly di- divisive person. You know, Parsons made her sort of second in command of the the... the the Agape Lodge, but she had no interest in it. She loved to party. She would go out to bars and call on the phone to interrupt Parsons' rituals and performances. And she was always just trying to be the center of attention, the center of the show. And her and Hubbard convinced Parsons, this is all pre-Dianetics, that they've got a business deal they're going to do. And he he gives them you know, virtually the entire proceeds from the sale of his house, to go out to Florida and buy some boats, three boats, and they're going to sail those boats back to the West Coast and, and make money by selling them out in California because I guess Florida boats were better than California boats. And, you know, that was quite a trip to do that. But all along, um, Hubbard was planning an around-the-world cruise on uh, on Parsons' money. So as we already talked about that, they have this feud. Um, L. Ron Hubbard sa- sails off into the future um, eventually divorces Betty because he's actually in an incest, he's he's actually in a relationship with another woman. He's married at the time he falls in with, with Betty Northrup and marries her. He cleans up his act, writes Dianetics, and the rest is history. And then he later claims, he polishes over this time in history by claiming to have been a secret agent who was, you know, embedded in with, you know, Parsons and the Agape Lodge and, and, you know, rolled heads and busted them up, you know, detective style. You know, what he was doing was, you know, for the good of the country to get rid of these commie, you know, Satanists uh, who, had, who had weaseled their way into the, you know, into the defense industry. And from that point on, you know, I mean, that's what's kind of funny about Crowley. Say what you want to about the guy. He certainly knew human nature. That was, that was his number one tool of his trade. He had all that pinned perfectly. I mean, Betty Northrop and L. Ron Hubbard were Parsons' undoing. From that point on, you know, his relationships fall apart. He gets drunk all the time. You know, he loses his fortune. He kind of loses his mind a little bit. And then, you know, he eventually loses his career. He doesn't have a place. Rocketry is no longer cowboy science by the 1950s. uh, We were planning, you know, the I believe we were getting close to putting Blue Gemini on the On the on the charts to start doing some of the early big rockets, we've done Operation Paperclip and stolen all the all the German scientists and away from them and the Cold War is going great guns. So there's just no home for Jack Parsons, the occultist inside the world of of rocketry at that time.
3: I I don't want to lose sight of of uh, Parsons' rocket contributions, I was going to talk about that, yeah, but sure. I think I'll put that in the pre info stuff because that's uh, I, that's easily summarized. But it's some good stuff.
6: Um, that's the thing. He, I mean, I mean, I know we're we're talking about him here from the occult angle, and and you know that's what people know Parsons for now. And in a way, that's unfortunate. But he he was not a minor deity; like he was a big deal, and the stuff he did was was. Was really important. I'm trying to think of an analog in today. I mean, I guess this would be, I mean, he wasn't Elon Musk big, but this would be like, you know, I don't know, the guy who wrote the original DOS program that, that Gates bought being an occultist or, or something like that. Like, Like, this is a guy who made a genuine contribution to science.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a, yeah, it, the computer industry might have some nice parallels. I'm not sure quite who to grab onto there, but uh yeah, he made some interesting breakthroughs, important ones. But I guess the point was but you're you mentioning paper clips a big thing because when yeah. when they, the, the Germans were way ahead of of the allies in rocketry. And so when they got the Germans, they got the German scientists, they got the German research Uh, And they, you know, basically forgave them for being terrible Nazis and said, hey, you know, (laughs) it's okay uh, if you'll just tell us about your rocket science. And so, you know, between – and and it went from uh, amazing artillery use uh, to uh, satellites and moonshots and all that stuff pretty quickly. Um, Pretty quick. Yeah, so – um, so that, that, that's another story altogether. The, the whole thing about operation paperclip and, you know, it, it certainly is faster if someone else has already done the work, but, but Parsons was making huge breakthroughs, uh, in, you know, chemistry, uh, but he was doing it in a really cowboy way.
6: You know, that's one, of, that's one of the things I do want to, I do want to address a little bit that I, I mean, we're all skeptics here though. I'm, I'm a, we might not be good skeptics by some people's standards, one of the weird, oh man, I'm gonna say I'm, I'm gonna say it. One of the good things about the Germans <laughs> is they were G- German culture was a little weird and a little mystical. I mean, aside from the whole Hitler thing, I mean, not to you know make a joke out of that. I mean, they were not as dogmatically skeptical as the American population was as we are. I mean, they had that whole like they thought vril was real. They had a very weird view of the world that we, you know, at the time would have thought was silly and today think is preposterous. But because of that, they had a culture of being willing to throw tons of money at these things they called Wunderwaffen, which were these, you know, exotic ideas for weapons. I mean, Hitler was investing money in a, in a nuclear bomb. Uh, he didn't put his money that way because he considered it Jewish science. So his prejudice got in his way there. Um, but he he took very seriously the concept of rockets in a way that Americans did not. And you're right. As a result of that, he got way the hell the hell ahead of us right at a time when when it was crucial that we actually be developing those kind of technologies.
3: Yeah, we, we were pretty short-sighted uh, in the whole thing about people not even wanting to believe rockets were possible. I mean, it, you know, there's a cool story about uh, Parsons and his coworkers or who were they were just friends at the time, not coworkers, but uh, calling up Goddard, uh, who was considered to be, I guess, the father of American rocketry, sure, uh, and uh, making phone calls and exchanging information until Parsons and his friends realized Goddard's actually pumping them for info. They've
6: got they've gotten ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, Goddard made the mistake of being so um, mindful of of his invention that he pulled away from the scientific community and worked in a vacuum. You can't do so it. So he wasn't. Yeah, yeah appraising himself for this developments by by sort of pulling away and working in isolation. JPL actually just got way ahead of the guy.
4: <laughs> the, the Nazis, I mean, they were exploring a lot of supernatural phenomena and and claims, and um, <laughs> they were trying to train dogs to talk and, and do all kinds of interesting things. So, it, yeah,
6: it, I, it got really weird. And again, you know, one of the founding the Vril Society, you guys ought to do a show on that sometime. Really seriously, proposed this idea based on a fictional novel, and people just took it they just started believing it. Like it just became a part of the, the Volkenreich, you know, mythology. I mean, it, 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 it went the other way. Like it, it just got bizarre and you're right. They were, looking into talking dogs and...
4: Oh, weren't they uh, they were looking for the Holy Grail as well? I think that Holy- was a- I, Yeah,
6: I saw a documentary about
3: that. It was very yeah. exciting. I saw that right. too. <laughs> it, <Yeah>. it was, <laughs> I remember it. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, no,
4: no, I no there, was, there was, was no, actually no, a I think guy. They were
3: looking yeah. for a lot of artifacts and uh, sending researchers to try to find the true history of the Aryan race and all that, kinds of things. The,
6: things. On, the organization was called the Ananerva, and one of the things that they... They did. They, they thought they, the world, I mean, talk about flat earth. They thought that the world was hollow and we were living on the inside. So they actually sent missions out to see across the, the inside of the earth as a way to weaponize living inside the hollow earth. So again, I don't, I don't want to talk up the fact that the, the Nazis had this superior worldview, but their, their sort of willingness to entertain craziness, you know, led them to make some very, very serious developments at a time when Jack Parsons and his team were out literally like working day jobs to fund university research like that to me just seems crazy that you would go to your job during the day take your wages and then go to Caltech and use your wages to to fund the university's research that you're doing for them i know that you would know? be
3: like like
4: sounds s- like my career
3: working a day job <laughs> and then spending all your money doing a podcast is crazy no, no. <laughs> <laughs> i know
4: being, being I know. an independent researcher yeah that's what yeah it's
3: like. No, but but in all seriousness, the, the uh mentioning of Rill, we we've actually talked about that yeah. briefly. If you go back to our history of magic, um this is uh, from yes. a uh, – there's a book called uh, The Coming Race by Edward bulwer Lytton, and uh, Madame Blavatsky. <laughs> a
6: dar- the Dark and Stormy Night guy. That's right.
3: It was yeah. a Dark and Stormy Night. That's exactly right. And so he writes this fictional book about Vril and about this, uh, I guess, inner earth uh, group and their magic. And it comes up again and again and again. It's uh, yes. it's involved in uh, Theosophy, the, the reboot with Blavatsky. It's involved in yes. uh, lots of other stuff. It seems awfully – reminiscent of the Shaver mysteries. It's just, it's just never going to die. So,
6: You know, and I the, I think Parsons was tapping into to bring it back to that, into this other kind of, like, Lima is the human manifestation of the will. And one of the things that happens that I find really interesting, you know, Seven Degrees of Separation, this is my connection to Jack Parsons, is, you know, Marjorie Cameron goes on to have a relationship with Kenneth Anger, the filmmaker, the guy who's sort of the modern prophet of of, uh, of chaos magic, who I actually met in Dallas in the '90s at the Thelemite Temple there. <laughs> so wow, you know, I mean, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, he was doing a book signing, I think, for Hollywood Babylon Two or one, one of those, and he did it at the the Temple of Thelema, which is quite. I don't know what it's like now, but in the '90s it was kind of a neat place there in Dallas. It wasn't very far from the, the Scottish Rite Masons Lodge, which is also a neat place in Dallas. There is this this idea that the you know, to borrow the Nietzschean phrase that the will, the power can be made manifest through magic, that you don't need the secret ritual. You just need a ritual. You don't need the, you know, the, the the magic words, you know, whatever clatu, Barada Niktu or whatever to be exactly right. So long as you're using these things as a focus for your will, um, it's, it's not really important how you do it. It's just that you make sure you do it. And, Parsons, I think, he never called what he did chaos magic. That phrase comes later. But that's what he was doing. His will to focus his his energy into these magical processes. And I think that's where he would explain it away as a kind of scientific method. You know, this is this is something that, you know, he could hang his hat on as something that might make the human will manifest in, in physical reality. And, of course, believed in this hierarchy of, of, of these beings out there.
3: But just a quick comment. I mean, it's not like this idea is dead. Not only there's still no. people— I mean, the, the Dean Radin, who some of our listeners will recognize from uh, his parapsychology work, and uh, uh, he's he's been around for a while. We've talked about him briefly a few times. But he just, he has a new book out right now, which is all about magic is real, that all this idea about the will and using the will to influence reality, it really works. Um, I'm highly skeptical of that. I think we've probably made that clear by now. But uh, it, even w- if this idea is not true, this idea is not dead.
6: I mean, not only is it not dead, you know, I was I was up in Brooklyn doing a reading of a, of a book uh, that I collaborated on a couple of weeks ago. One of my friends who was a fellow author is a Wiccan and, and she's done a book called, I'll plug a book, uh, Light Magic for Dark Times. And it's I mean, that's her whole shtick is that, you know, I've written this book of magic spells that, I mean, I think I think you and I might call it curandismo. It's sort of a way to, or, or channeled meditation, like, you know, I mean, she calls it magic. But to me, it feels a lot like a, a way to engage in mindfulness, relaxation, uh, curandaria, you know, uh, the kind of stuff that you would get. Uh, through meditation, and, and it's the process, the ritual, the assembling, the artifacts, all have a sort of calming effect on the psyche, and if you're trying to use magic as a, as an antidote for anxiety, I mean, that doesn't hurt my feelings too much, I mean, I don't know how that's any different from me paying my shrink, you know, 500 bucks to, to take me through guided Meditation to, to unwind.
3: Well, I mean, how many people you, we seem to have a tendency as humans to develop rituals, whether we imbue them with magical significance or not. The, I mean, correct the things you do that succeed; those are the things you tend to repeat. You know, correct. And unfortunately, the things you do that fail but feel good also you tend also to also repeat. You repeat. I yeah. But I, I was actually curious. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the uh, Sex and Rockets book, it seems like Jack was just making his rituals up, like his actual Crowley-esque research seemed to be pretty limited from when I was reading and that he he was just sort of defining his own rituals. And that seems like what you're talking about.
6: So, Blake, are, are you asserting that people don't make up sacred texts?
3: Mm, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to know if there's any definitive I mean, ra- reason to somewhere. believe Jack and- No,
6: I, I imagine everything has source material. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was. And he admitted he was just making them up. And that was the crooks of his thing. He he really did. And Crowley was the same way. I mean, Lieber 49, which is Parsons' Babylon working, that's his most famous work and his contribution to sort of magical literature en masse. He says he was channeled to him in the desert. Well, I mean, you know, all of his writings, that they were all channeled by these ancient masters. That's what Blavatsky said. It's always channeled. I mean, hell, man, the Bible was channeled, right? Like, it, that's the method by which rituals come into being on on the part of most people. And that's what, you know, I mean, what is that's how Hubbard got Dianetics, right? He went into a trance and reconnected with his ancient... Reincarnated self or whatever, and channeled dianetics. But yeah, Parsons was just making this stuff up. He wasn't going. He wasn't doing what what we want him to do. Like you and I want him to go to the monastery in Poland and find the book, you know, from 1430, and and bring it down and do the ancient ritual and have all this stuff happen. That's what Alistair Crowley did with his Moonchild ritual. He actually had the Book of Abramelin, which is this sort of obscure text, and and he was trying to you know, base his his ritual practice on this ancient text. But Parsons being a scientist, I mean the guy invented his rockets out of out of thin air. He invented his rituals out of thin air too and and saw them as a the vehicle for, for channeling his will. And it's clear if you read Libra 49, it reads like Jack Parsons, um scientific text. It is it is dry and it it's like and it needs to be written in Latin because it's not, even by the standards of, of magic ritual. And it's clearly Jack Parsons talking, but it is incredibly complex. There's some aspects of it which are compelling, and I mean, it is this this sort of repetitious attempt to contact this this deity. He's got a, you know, he's got a book, he's got a dagger, he's got some magic stones, you know, all the all the usual um, you know stuff that you would have to do that kind of ritual.
4: So, regarding Jack Parsons' death. Um,
1: yeah, you, you mentioned
4: about- you mentioned earlier that uh, Cameron was of the opinion that it had been an assassination. I would heard that maybe uh, there were uh, stories that it was suicide or that something else was going on. What do you make of those claims? Do you think it was just bad science that led Man, to this? Is,
6: this is the one I'm the most interested in. You know, and where I kind of you know we'll talk out of school a little bit. Everybody thinks the U.S government does assassination, but man, then as now, like this town can't keep a secret, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, it just can't. If two, if two government employees know something and 200 government employees know something. So I, I don't believe Jack Parsons was assassinated because I, I don't think targeted assassination then as now was a, was a, would have been a dangerous practice you know, for anyone to engage in. There were better ways, and there are better ways, to undermine someone than to just straight-up outright kill them. I mean, how's that working out for for Putin? Every time he kills somebody, he gets weaker, not stronger, and his opposition grows, not his strength. So I don't think he was assassinated by the U.S. government. That being said, the Israeli government certainly assassinates people, and they don't hide the fact. So the door's not closed on that, possibility. But he was trying to get a, a job with Israel, and Israel was very interested in hiring him. So I think that puts them out of the frame. The other possibility for assassination is that he had helped bust some cops for murder. Um, in that pipe bomb case, they had blown up a car. Some people have ar- argued that the explosion came from underneath Parsons' house and uh, and that he was assassinated by, by those crooked cops or by friends of, of the, the LAPD who who wanted revenge on Parsons. And then thirdly, there's the idea of, of suicide. Hell of a way to go. I mean, if Parsons were going to blow himself up, knowing his flair for drama, I'm not sure he would have just taken a can of fulminate a mercury and thrown it on the floor. I mean, that seems, for one thing, it didn't kill him right off. It, it must have been incredibly painful and gory. I, I think he would, you know, knowing Parsons would walk out in the desert with one of his bombs and just, you know, go up in a puff, painless, bright flash of light uh and then there's the possibility that it was an accident and you know i i hate to be the the downer in the conspiracy theory but he had contributed to some fairly major and dangerous explosions at caltech while he was there and sometimes their lab would blow up in the middle of the day when nobody was even around so you know people who say he was safe with his 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 uh his pyrotechnics I don't trust that. I mean, cause he's mixing up this fulminate of mercury in a coffee can in a converted laundry room
3: now. And, and, I, and to be fair, no longer a, a bastion of sobriety.
6: Yeah, yes. <laughs> he's drinking a lot. And you know, my dad was, a, was a tinkering inventor and he damn near blew our house up one time. Uh, he kept this stuff around that he called floor sweep, which was a whole bunch of petrochemical poured into a gigantic 50 gallon drum of, uh, what do you call it, uh, wood shavings from the floor. And he would use that to sort of clean up, uh, spilled, uh, (laughs) alkaloids around our garage slash laboratory. And one day he knocked his blowtorch into that thing and, you know, damn near blew us all. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, you know, and I mean, my dad's a smart, clever guy who had an OSHA certification and all that stuff. So like, you know, accidents happen, and I just, man, I still feel like Parson's just got careless. I mean, you do that mm. kind of work enough, you get confident, you get overconfident. And let's look at the fact that, you know, he's heading, he's trying to get out the door to go to Mexico about a job. He's strapped for cash. He gets a rush order for this collection of pyrotechnics that he needs to do, and he's trying to slap them together in a hurry, literally while Cameron's at the grocery store. So to me, that that doesn't smell like... Uh, um, uh, murder. That smells like an accident. Like, mm-hmm. plus, you know, how do you how do you pull that murder off? Like, what does that look like when the the G man walks in the door? What does he do? Grab the can of explosives and throw it on the ground with the the tenants, you know, six feet away in the upstairs room, and then somehow run out before anybody. It doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no there's no K Bono there in terms of of trying to pin this on somebody. But sure, you know, sure. again, I encourage people to read those great. The, the 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 source. But if you're a Twin Peaks rant fan, definitely read the books, because the whole uh, Jack Parsons murder plays a huge role in the in the Twin Peaks mythology. Same with uh, Tannis, the podcast. Like they really play up the Jack was assassinated thing as a part of their their collective uh, mythology. Right. Certainly adds to his legend. It sure does. Yeah, yeah. But w- I mean, he didn't know anything. At that time, the government didn't have any reason to kill him because he didn't know anything like he was out of the game at that point. Yeah. He felt clear to leave.
3: Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um. So we've talked about Jack and I think in pretty great detail, which I really appreciate. Sure. Well, um, but I don't want to leave without saying something about Cameron. So she lives on. What? What? What's her legacy? What happens with her? Oh,
6: man. I'm glad you want to bring that up. It's yeah. it's. It's a shame because I just I'm crazy about her art. Like anybody go online and Google Marjorie Cameron. Yeah, you
3: won't have to or you can just go to our show notes at mustruk.org. I'll put a link to it. It is amazing art.
6: Oh my God. Mm. Yeah. You know, she is just incredible. She did this amazing um sort of self-portrait of herself. I think it's called Cameron with the Black Egg. And it's it's her with her striking red hair in the she's actually you know, wearing the Thelemite garb of, of the Agape Lodge and she's holding this black egg which represents, you know, the birth of Babylon and the moon child that they're trying to give birth to. Her stuff is just like it is just like the greatest, trippiest, coolest, you know, like I I want a piece of this stuff. Like there's four or five pieces of art I'm trying to get and I, I absolutely want some of her stuff. She has an interesting life. Like she sort of breezes through Jack Parsons' life. He's killed. You know, she ultimately ends up living in New Mexico in the in the Pueblos out there. She falls in with a sculptor after having, you know, a, a really bad time immediately following Parson's death. Um, she has a fling with Ken Anger uh, and she sort of ends up out there sort of practicing her art. She's she falls into kind of an Anais Nin sort of pop culture role showing up in, in famous people's movies and sort of sitting on the couch in weird videos and just and just sort of being around that art scene. You know, like I, I have friends like that in Brooklyn who are just, you know, they're no they're nobody of note, but they're always at the hot party. You know, and that's sort of the role that she falls into of sort of being this this pop culture person. But she has terrible health problems. She was a chain smoker, like nobody's business. And by midlife, she's already got emphysema. She's got a lung collapse. Um, she oh. doesn't quit smoking. I mean, she sticks with it. Um, and she lives up until, I think, about 19, yeah, 1995. Um, and she continues to just sort of hang out with these other occultists and sort of has a way to monetize the little bit of, of, of work that she does and the little bit of sort of pop culture um, heroism that she does. Um, Somebody referred to her as the Typhoid Mary of the occult world. Like <laughs> 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 that, she, awesome. sort of, she sort of comes and goes into this universe. Um, she had a few art showings. There was a, a famous one in 1964. That was probably the height of her career. Uh, I think it was called The, um, was called the Transcendental Art of, of Cameron. And that was probably the one time that her artwork was on display uh, and it shows up from time to time. I was, I think I was in Taos one time and just walked in and I was like, that's a Marjorie Cameron piece and I can't afford it right now. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's a shame. Like, it, it would be cool. Like, like, for all the MFA students listening to you tonight, <laughs> this would be a cool project. You know, go out and do a catalog of Marjorie Cameron's work and and stick into her and give her the, the biography. I, I think it, it, you know, her, uh, her reputation sort of began to grow after her, uh, after her death. I think the Whitney museum has done a couple of, of exhibitions of her stuff. And then of course, sex and rockets features Cameron fairly heavily. It's sad because I don't really think she shows up that much in strange angel. Like, like she's, she's more of a background character. And I think she's starting to sort of enjoy this, uh, this, uh, this sort of revival of her own reputation. I mean, it would be cool to pick that up and, and run with it as a project.
3: Well, whatever they do with the TV show, I hope they figure her prominently because she's really. I interesting. don't even
6: know that she's in it. I, what? I was looking at the cast list. I, I don't see anybody cast as Marjorie Cameron. Uh, so, uh, yeah. glaring a mission. Yeah, so I'm kind of curious as to how they're going to do that. So you know, you'll have to do it. You'll—I'm ready for the Blake Karen review of Strange Angel when it when it comes out. I, I, but, but man, I
3: mean, I'm ready to watch it. I just I, you know I have really mixed feelings about it being dramatized. So.
6: Yeah, this is fun though because you know you 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 might be like me. Like the first time I heard about Jack Parsons, it was like this cool secret that nobody knew. Like it was true. Like oh, I know about this cool guy that nobody's heard of, and you know you'd go to the you know, some corner of the web in in 1999, and there would be this little discussion about this famous rocket scientist that was into magic. And then all of a sudden, like he, he has really enjoyed a a revival. Like it has just come out. I don't even know what's driving it, but it has just come out of nowhere.
3: Yeah. I I don't either, but it's, it's, it's certainly, I think deserved. He said, absolutely. Mm. As I said, these, the nexus of, of science and magic in American culture. So yeah, really
6: interesting. So fascinating. I mean, maybe it's the whole cult of Tesla. Maybe he's like the junior Tesla or Tesla for for Lovecraft fans. Maybe he.
3: Well, uh, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, he's kind of like the inverse. Yeah, the other side of it, right? So, uh, yeah. if, if Tesla's the the science as magician, he's the magician as science, right?
6: Right. So, I mean, I'm I, I will proudly out myself as being on on team Edison. I'm I'm Get me paid. <laughs> 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 I, I ain't lying. <laughs>
3: yeah, that, that'll have to... S- go for my book whenever I finish that project. That'll, that'll be, that's very, yeah. Edison's a great example of how to, how to monetize incremental improvements on somebody else's back. Right, right? So, you
6: know. mm-hmm. This, this is dedicated to my mortgage and my attempt to incrementally monetize this podcast. Yes. <laughs> this does seem like
3: a great place to put a plug in for Patreon, but uh, <laughs> I'll have one at the we lead. For a moment. Absolutely. No, but seriously, Jerry, uh, this was fantastic. Uh, thank you for thank helping you. us uh, do better than I think I could have done. Trying to, co- I can't be the expert on this. I, I'm so fascinated by it, though.
4: Um, oh, incredible story! Yeah.
3: I just so involved. Be- before this interview, I went to a used bookstore and was while I was there for my son. I was taking him there, and I stopped and asked one of the book people if they had a used copy of Strange Angel. And I was trying to explain to them. They were like, they didn't know who Jack Parsons was. I gave them like a two minute review, and they're like oh, my God, how could I have never heard of this person? I'm like, well, you're right. about to. That's how yeah.
4: I felt. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, for any people who were, like, complaining because I'm doing these magic episodes, okay, I'm almost done. Uh oh, But if, if you really. didn't enjoy this one, I don't know why you're listening to the show. <laughs>
4: well, this, this story involves a lot of monsters, I think. It does.
3: I, you can't have the kind of monsters we have in, in Western culture without this Western esotericism influence. It's just all mixed together.
6: Sure. It's all part of And one thing I do, I do want to say, you know, after the the two issues, the two episodes on Grimmar, I got, I just want to thank everybody. I got so much positive feedback on that. You know, I had people, you know, sending me information about their cases and I I had probably a dozen emails, people asking for me to actually write the, the, the book, the most valuable uh, uh, book in the world. I've done a treatment. I've actually been working on that. So I might, you know, doing, doing that one podcast might actually get me off my butt to to write something instead of just talking about writing something. So that was, that was the feedback was great. And I certainly appreciate it. That's awesome. One piece of advice is don't tell anybody
3: what you're working on. Just do the work.
6: Yeah. Right. Cause you get get that, you get that fake feeling
3: like you've accomplished something when you tell somebody something. (laughs)
6: Don't let me, uh, don't
3: let my wife listen to this. She's like,
6: damn it. Oh, edit this bit out.
3: (laughs) All right, this, was, this is fantastic. Thank, thank, you, you. thank you again, Jerry. We really appreciate thank your you time. Thank you so
4: much, Jerry. Good to have you on here again.
6: When you're in town, drink a beer with me. You know I will.
3: All right, see ya.
6: Monster Talk.
3: You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake
4: Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
3: You just heard an interview with Jerry Drake talking about the amazing life of Jack Parsons, rocket scientist and occultist. A link to the books we discussed will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms.
5: Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue. Bigger stars. Bigger ideas. Bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. SciCon is already one of the planet's premier sceptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of the illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and scepticism. For 2018, we want SciCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psy-Babe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Shrubb serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banner Check. author book signings, and, of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true. Conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine and the deniers of evolution, climate change and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With SciCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's SciConference
3: monster talk theme music is by peach stealing monkeys thanks again for listening
5: Skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.